So, in the 90s, I worked on several grounds crews, several institutions. And what that meant was I essentially mowed the lawn, took care of gardens and things like that. Well, at one particular institution, they had all these ponds. Uh, and there's one pond in particular, this one actually, up here on the screens. Had a big uh, willow tree and several trees around it, and the winds would blow, and the leaves and the branches would fall into the pond, and they would start to rot, and as a result, turn into that kind of black, mucky, smelly stuff. And so I walked in to work one day, and the supervisor handed me a pair of waders and a pitchfork. And he said, your job is to muck all that stuff out of the pond till it's gone. All right, you're paying me, you're the boss. So I went out every day, and I'm just out there mucking this stuff. And it was, ne- it was the smell that was the worst. It just smelled so bad. I want to speak to something today that is essential to a life of faith, but has been and can become a bit controversial. There are lots of opinions and emotions around this thing, and historically, battles have been fought both metaphorically and literally. And as a result, things have gotten really, really mucky. And so today, we're going to pitchfork some of the muck What I want to talk today to you about is worship. Now, when I think about worship, many of us immediately go to music. Because we've been culturally conditioned to think that that music is like the way to worship. Because we, we come to church and like we have the announcement part, we have the three song part, which is like the worship part, then we have the sermon. And then we have the closing song, which is kind of worship, but it's also kind of just something to do before we leave that makes a nice, neat transition. The first time I walked into a Protestant church was in 1991. I had never been in one before. And it was weird, quite frankly. And I sat down, and this guy got up and said, okay, we're going to worship God now. And there were guitars and drums and keyboards, and I'd never seen anything like that. And because this was, you know, before cool technology, we had this thing called a, a projector. Anybody remember these things? And the words were displayed with the projector on a clear sheet of paper. And if you weren't good enough or cool enough to be in the band, at least you could run the projector, move the sheets of paper. And that was worship. But when anyone ever talked about worship in that church, it was always in reference to the music. Some of us, now we have playlists on our Spotify or Apple Music accounts, and we've labeled them worship. And of course, God likes the kind of music I like, because why wouldn't he? Which I suppose opens a whole other discussion, because tastes change and styles change. It's happened all throughout history. When Handel's Messiah debuted in London for the very first time, it was labeled by the critics as indecent. So I would argue that we need to move beyond the music. And while music is certainly a way to worship, 
It is not the end all. Now, see, you and I, we naturally desire to worship something. It's ingrained within us. I believe everyone worships something. All of us ascribe honor and glory and worth to something. And most people on planet Earth worship a deity of some kind. I mean, right now, on planet Earth, there are about 7.9 billion people. Of those 7.9 billion people, roughly 500 to 700 million people would say, I am a full-fledged atheist. I believe no God, no deity, there's nothing out there. Which means over 7 billion people believe in and worship some form of deity. We all worship. So for the next few moments, I'd like to begin by speaking to the reason for worship, why we worship in the first place. Then I want to look at the range of worship. Like, where does worship begin and end, and what's worship and what's not? And then finally, we're going to talk about the results of worship, because worship does something to us. To do that, we're going to turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. We're going to spend time in most of this chapter Romans uh, is a book written by the Apostle Paul. It is his theological opus. The greatest body of the Apostle Paul's theology and thought is contained in the book of Romans. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. And after I read verses 1 and 2, we're just going to pause for a moment and quiet ourselves before the Lord. I'm going to leave the scripture verse on the screen. And let's just sit together for a moment with this scripture. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what's the reason for worship? Why do we do this in the first place? I think the answer is actually quite simple. The Apostle Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. That phrase, I urge you, is basically somewhere between a command and, and begging. I urge you, in view of God's mercy... I mean, the reason I worship, the reason you worship is because of God's great compassionate mercy on us, his people. That he created us. He took nothing and made it something. You exist because of his goodness. Jesus came and offered redemption through his sacrifice on the cross. That because of Jesus, we have been made right with God. We've been offered forgiveness all of which is a result of God's mercy. And because of God's mercy, I choose each day to worship him. You see, worship is simply ascribing worth to something. That's what the word means, to ascribe worth, to give honor to. We ascribe 
value to things every single day. I stumbled upon uh, this painting this week. This one, I think it's called The Yellow Line. Um, This painting sold for $300 million. Someone decided somewhere that this painting had a value, had a worth of $300 million. Like, who decides those kind of things? When I worship God, I'm making a decision. And my worship is simply an expression of my gratitude, my love, and my commitment to my Redeemer and my Creator. Because, see, as I worship, I am mindful of God's love for me. Like, even if we feel like we didn't get much out of the worship experience personally, I mean, maybe you've gone to church and you walked out and you said, eh, I didn't get much out of church today. I mean, obviously when you were visiting a different church on vacation. (laughs) I didn't get much out of church today. But do you realize that even if you feel like you didn't get much out of worship, being present keeps our mind, our hearts, and our attitudes pointed in the right direction towards him. So whether it's at church or at home, We're saturated in remembering what God has done. A moment ago, we sang, holy, holy, holy. And we were reminded of the holiness and the goodness of God. So as I worship, I'm telling God I love him with my whole life. I mean, Jesus was asked, what's the the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love God with all that you are. Your heart, soul, and mind. As I worship, I'm giving my heart, soul, and mind to God, my creator. So what then are the parameters? What what is the range of worship? Back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the second half of that verse. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So again, the question, what is worship and what is not worship? And who decides? What's the range? Where does worship begin? Where does worship end? And where does something else start to happen? It's a great question because the funny thing about it is that it seems as though God always likes what I like. And if worship is simply about what I like, then who am I really worshiping? I mean, for some of us, I, I, I think... Myself included, worship in heaven is going to be a little uncomfortable. There's a description in Revelation chapter 4 of worship in heaven. John is writing, he's having this vision, and he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone like an emerald encircling the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 elders, 24 other thrones, and on them were seated 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. 
In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, and day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord, of glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they have been created. Now I read this and I think about the way that I worship God and I don't think it's wrong, but I'm a fairly introverted, fairly non-demonstrative kind of person, unless I'm watching the bills. But beyond that, I'm just very, and so when I worship, I'm, you know, I'm this guy, presence with the Lord. But then I read Revelation, and there's rumblings and lightning and peals of thunder, and people are on their knees, and they're bowing, saying, holy, 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 and throwing crowns on the ground, and that's a lot going on. But it's worship. So when we come back to Romans, when the Apostle Paul writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's not just referencing our physical body. He's talking about our body, mind, soul, spirit, everything. Offer your full self to God. And then in Romans, we start to look back a little bit because the Apostle Paul is linking our worship to sacrifice in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, worship came at significant cost. In order to worship in the New Test, the Old Testament, it often required the sacrifice of an animal at your cost. So if you were going to go to worship, you had to purchase the animal you were going to sacrifice, whether it was an ox, a goat, a sheep, a bull, those kind of things that you paid for. And then it took time because you had to travel from wherever you lived to Jerusalem, which could have been a significant journey because all worship had to happen at the temple. And so there was sacrifice involved. And the sacrifice died and you didn't get to like take the meat home and make steaks. I mean, that was it. You sacrificed, it was worship to God. But then we come to Romans and because of what Jesus has done, God is no longer looking for dead sacrifices. He's looking for living sacrifices and worship still comes at a cost. I mean, imagine this scenario. When my, my kids were little, and we would get them ready for church, this kind of scenario played out. You know, we'd get up, change their diapers, get the kids fed, get them dressed, and there's the argument because my daughter, when she was like four years old, she always wanted to wear these cheap, nasty Cinderella plastic slippers and shorts to church, even in the middle of winter, like it's three degrees out. But Dad, I'm Cinderella. Okay, whatever, fine. Get frostbite, then you'll learn, right? So that kind of stuff would happen, and then my son, you know, he's small and just trying to get the kids ready and rest, like wrestling little bears, and finally, you get him into the van, and you're about to pull out and go to church and worship, and then one of the kids says, Dad, I pooped, and So I told that story last night, and my wife was here, and she said, what do you mean, we? <laughs> she said, because you were the pastor, you were already there. <laughs> Maybe you can relate. That whole scenario that I just described, I'm convinced that's worship. 
It's worship because you're saying, I'm doing all of this because God is worth it. So whether it's listening and responding to the Bible, praying, sitting silently, giving generously, celebrating communion or baptism or fasting or serving the poor and the needy or trying to wrestle a couple of kids into the car to go to church and worship. It's all worship. The three songs on the weekend or your Apple playlist labeled worship is just a small microcosm of what it means to offer ourselves fully to God. Because worship is not an event. It's a lifestyle that I choose to live, live, and it's always moving us towards something. There's a story in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15. I don't have time to read it all, so I'll summarize. 1 Samuel, chapter 15, Saul is the king of Israel, and he's been given a command by God to go to battle against their enemies, and he's given very specific instructions as to what he is to do, what he is not to do, and what the result should be. Well, he goes to battle, he wins, and he's real proud of himself, and he only partially did what God asked him to do. And so the prophet Samuel comes and says, you didn't do all that God asked you to do. And Saul said, yeah, I did. And he says, no, you didn't do this, this, and this. And Saul starts to make excuses because that's what we do. We make excuses. And then Samuel looks him in the eye and says to him this, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than the offering the fat of rams. What's better than all my prayers and all my singing and all my Bible reading? It's obedience to what God has asked me to do and become. It's living his way. Because see, the result of worship moves us now to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And where does the apostle Paul writes? So he's talking about worship. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The very next line, the result of being in God's presence, the result of offering yourself fully to him, the result of worship is transformation. Worship is not something I check off of my spiritual to-do list. I went to church, God's off my back for at least a week. See, God asks a couple things of us. First, God asks for a decisive commitment. Jesus' invitation was, come and follow me. We choose to follow or not. And then when we move into Romans, we're challenged to live that commitment every day. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By thinking the right things, valuing the right things, living in a way that emulates and models the one that we say that we're following. We're even given like... We're even given a a little bit of kind of a measurement tool to see how we're doing. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the apostle Paul says, you you basically want to know if you're being transformed. Here's some evidence. Here's some results. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things start to grow and mature in my life as I'm transformed. I'm not perfect. We start to see evidence of it. Because listen, when we talk about worship, we're not talking about evoking a feeling or fabricating an experience. We are encountering a person. We are encountering our creator and as a result, becoming something better. Like this whole thing, this isn't just some like nice sing-along in a TED talk. 
We've been invited by God into his very presence. And anything in God's presence is transformed. That word transformation, it comes from a Greek word that can also mean metamorphosis, to be completely changed. And so, listen, it doesn't matter what Bible verse is being taught. It doesn't matter if we're singing hymns with an organ or newer songs with the band. It doesn't matter if we're sitting in complete silence. We are worshiping the greatness of God. Because of that, we are in his presence, and when we're in his presence, we're changed. I have a friend who worked as a server at a restaurant, and she told me that the very worst shift you could get at that restaurant was Sunday at lunch. She said, because Sunday at lunch, all the church folks would come in. And she said they were the most rude, the biggest complainers, and the cheapest tippers. And so I asked, well, then what was happening an hour ago? In God's presence. I mean, do I really believe what I read when I open the Bible? Do I really believe the songs that I'm singing? Do I really believe the prayers that I'm praying? Because if I do, then something happens. There's a change that takes place. Romans chapter 12 concludes with this whole kind of diatribe on what a transformed person starts to take shape like. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, same chapter on worship. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are some things the Bible says that I don't like. Bless those who persecute you. Like, I don't really like that. Like, bless those who say horrible things about me. Bless those who do horrible things to me. I don't want to bless. I want to punch. And I bet there's times you've wanted to as well. Bless those who persecute you. And if your enemy, like that word enemy is a strong word. Like your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. And if your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. I can't do any of this on my own without the Lord's help because this is, this is contrary to me as a human being. 
And yet, as I'm in God's presence, as I worship, as love begins to grow and patience begins to grow and self-control begins to grow, my life patterns begin to change and shift. And so as I wrap this whole thing up this week, and here's the challenge, here's the next step. Can we find ways this week, every day this week, to worship God with our full self, to offer our full self as a living sacrifice? Whether it's singing songs, reading the Bible, praying, serving someone, loving someone, serving the poor, giving generously, fasting, praying, whatever. Is there something we can do with our full self? And as we offer our full self to God, as we're transformed, we become just a little bit more like him. My prayer for all of us, God, is that we would, that we would offer ourselves not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice with all that we are. We say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And of course, God, we're not perfect, but as we spend time in your presence, would you just make us a little more loving, a little more joyful, a little more peaceful, a little more patient, a little more kind, a little more good, a little more gentle, a little more self-controlled. Not to brag on ourselves, but so that we can honor you with our life. And so we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our true and proper worship. Amen. Amen.